Ink and Quill illuminates on literature, culture and beyond. That's cool, isn't it? Listen to the sound of some incredible readings. The Great Wall story is the story of the relationship. The imagery in China is so strong. It's a book about the human story. Ink and Quill. Something provoking. You have to think like a queen. Something thoughtful. History's fantasy, really. Something fun. See some naughty people trying to steal panda cubs. All here on Ink and Quill. Discovering literature and the following stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong in Beijing. Nowadays, you don't need to be a techno geek to realize the buzz that the artificial intelligence has generated. In 2014, the Associated Press started to use robots to write stories. Earlier this year, Google's AI program AlphaGo stunned the world by defeating South Korean Go champion Lee Sedol. As machines become more intelligent, the human species will, at least some among us, start to worry about the potential usurpation of computers. But should we be scared right now? To uncover myths and clear doubts on this matter, our reporter Shi Yu talks with Professor Marie Shanahan from Imperial College London, an expert in cognitive robotics, as well as the author of the book *Technological Singularity*. Professor Shanahan, good to see you. I know the Chinese edition of your latest book has just been released, but the title of this book, *Technological Singularity*, may sound a little bit baffling to lots of listeners. So, could you explain it in simple terms? Yeah. So, the technological singularity、uh, for me is a time in the future when we manage to create human-level artificial intelligence.、Mm-hmm. So, AI that's capable of doing just as many things as a human being can do. Uh, the same range of intellectual activities, and then also, if that happens, then I think that very soon afterwards we'll have super intelligent AI, so AI that's smarter than any human being, and that I think will have a dramatic effect on on society、um, uh, if and when it happens. So that's what the technological singularity、uh, means to me,、uh, and the the words really allude to.、Uh, it's a sort of metaphor with coming from maths and physics. So in in maths and physics, a singularity. Is a point in time and space where the mathematics breaks down, such as the centre of a black hole or、mm-hmm. the time of the Big Bang. So, by analogy, this time in history is a point where we can no longer really understand what will happen afterwards because it's such a dramatic break in in history.、Mm-hmm. So, how could we reach this singularity, and when will this singularity happen? Well, I think the difficult step actually is getting to human-level AI in the first place.、Mm-hmm. So I really have no idea when that will happen. Some authors make very concrete predictions that it will happen in the 2020s or at 2045. But I think getting to human-level AI is actually very difficult, and there are quite a number of conceptual breakthroughs we need to make before we get there. But if we do get to human-level artificial intelligence, I think that superintelligence will actually come quite quickly afterwards. And that's because as soon as we liberate intelligence from biology, then there are all kinds of constraints that are no longer there. So an AI that is in a computer doesn't have to sleep, it doesn't have to eat, it's not constrained by biology in the same way that that we are. And that means we could do some very simple things like just speeding it up or increasing the amount of memory available to it, and that will make it. 
smarter than a human being very quickly. So the real difficult bit is getting to the human level. And then the step from human level to superhuman level, I think, will be quite rapid. So regarding human level AI, is it possible to develop something like Ava from the movie Ex Machina, you know, an AI with sophisticated intelligence and consciousness? Well, so of course, we have to emphasize that Ex Machina is only a science fiction film. Mm -hmm. And my book is is about speculating about what might really happen. So whether things will really look like Ava or not is, uh, you know, who knows? We don't really know, I Mm -hmm. think, at the moment. Uh, so that's science fiction. and But then, then what the film really explores very cleverly, I think, is the relationship between intelligence and consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's also something that my book explores a little bit. Mm-hmm. So if we do manage to make human-level AI, is it necessarily the case that it will have consciousness as well, that it will have human feelings and, or behavior. emotions? And, uh, and I think, I think uh, the answer is that it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. So we might make human level AI that doesn't exhibit emotions, doesn't have experiences, doesn't have consciousness in the way that we do. So it might be just as clever as us, but have no feelings. So it's possible, I think, to make an uh, AI that is that is like that. But it's also possible, I think, as well, to make AI in the future. We I must emphasize that we're talking about, you know, quite a long time in the future here, decades away. It's possible to make AI that, that does have consciousness and feelings and maybe we need to decide whether that's a good idea or not Mm -hmm. but it seems like right now our computers and ai are capable of self-learning and thinking you know early this year we have google's AlphaGo beat south korean player lisa doll in go match does AlphaGo's victory mean something so AlphaGo uh, mm. really is a very significant achievement in, mm. in AI. Uh, I think it's quite uh, remarkable what they what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's it's worth bearing in mind that uh, AlphaGo is a very very narrow kind of intelligence. I mean, all it can do is play Go. So AlphaGo, of course, defeated Lee Sedol four games to one in, in, in that match. If we compare AlphaGo to Lee Sedol, I have to say that Lee Sedol wins in every other way because all that AlphaGo can do is play Go, whereas Lee Sedol can do an endless number of other things, just like any human being can. Mm-hmm. So, so you and I can, can hold a conversation, uh, we can play with a child, we can uh, make breakfast, we can do all kinds of things, we can learn whole new tasks tasks like uh, how to be a journalist, how to drive a car, Mm -hmm. how to tender the garden and and just hundreds of different things that we can learn. We can create whole new activities. The remarkable thing is that uh, that a general intelligence like that is able to play Go at all to such a high standard. So AlphaGo is a very specialist intelligence. All it does is play Go, whereas human beings have a general intelligence and we really don't know yet how to endow computers or robots with that kind of general intelligence. So is it still too early to say that singularity is looming on the horizon? I'm quite sure it's not looming on the horizon. <laughs> and so human level intelligence is, is not around the corner. It's, it's very difficult. There are a lot of conceptual breakthroughs I think we need to make before, before it happens. 
But last year, both Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk warned about the full development of AI. They said it will lead to the extinction of the humankind. Yes. What's your thought on that? Well, so I, I think that、um, it's a little bit premature to announce the extinction of the human race through、uh, AI.、Um, so first of all,、uh, the timescale is very important. That, that human-level AI is certainly. Uh, decades away, so it's media pronouncements made it sound like something that was just about to happen, but it certainly is, is human-level AI is not something that's about to happen. And if it does happen, so I do think we do have to think about the future、mm-hmm. and when we do create human-level artificial intelligence. And it is true that there are. Safety issues. We have to make sure that if we do build human-level AI, and it's a very powerful technology, we do have to make sure that it is safe and beneficial to humanity. So there is a kind of point in in, in what they were saying, but you know, people are thinking about these issues very carefully, and、uh, AI developers are taking seriously the safety and ethical issues. So my hope is that. Uh, Uh, is that、uh, it will, things will turn out okay? <laughs> <laughs> But what will be the biggest philosophical problem when super AI and human level AI really occur?、Mm, the biggest philosophical problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are a number of quite sort of deep questions that we that we can ask. So, one actually concerns the issue of. Of、uh, employment, technological unemployment. So, in、mm-hmm. fact, this is perhaps a shorter-term issue as well, and it's important even before we get to human-level AI that as more and more occupations are taken over by or are automated or taken over by AI, then we mo- might move into an era where there are, is just less and less work for human beings to、yeah. do. So, in that case, in a sense, we have to rethink what it means to lead a, a meaningful life. So, if our lives If、uh, if meaning isn't given to our lives through our work, then we have to find other ways to、uh, to lead meaningful lives. Hopefully, more than just sort of sitting in front of the television watching meaningless rubbish or、uh, slobbing around in the bar with a drink or something, <laughs> but a meaningful life. You know, a creative, meaningful life which emphasizes human relations and 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 our creativity. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. You are listening to Ink and Quill with Yang Yong. Now our reporter Shi Yu continues her conversation with Professor Marie Shanahan from Imperial College London, an expert in cognitive robotics, as well as the author of the book, Technological Singularity. You know, as human, we are very self-conscious about our existence. We're used to be thinking ourselves as superior than anything else on this planet. Then we, if we really create something smarter than us, people start to freak out or worry about it. Yes. Well, I mean, my hope is that、uh, is that if we do create, well, I think even in the short term, that the AI technology that we create is going to, you know, complement our humanity and it's going to be beneficial and, and help us. So, in thinking in the short term, or the shorter term at least,、um, I mean, one、uh, application of AI technology is personalized medicine, for example.、Um, so we're moving into an era where. Everybody's genome will be. It'll be possible for everybody to get their genome sequenced,、uh, and to accumulate lots of data about their lifestyle、um, by through wearable devices. We'll, we'll be able to accumulate data about our exercise regime and our heart rate and our glucose. 
levels and things like that. And all of this personal data combined with very large amounts of data from clinical trials and about different kinds of drugs and so on will be able to be combined thanks, thanks to AI and machine learning to tailor treatments for a particular uh, individual that will make them very much more effective. So that's an example of where I think sophisticated AI technology is going to benefit uh, humanity. I think those short term, you know, that's in the fairly short term. So I, my, my hope is that it will be beneficial. And even in the longer term, if we do create human level artificial intelligence, well, the reason to create it is to, I mean, the primary reason for creating it that most people will have is to, uh, is to help us, mm -hmm. to help us um, with our humanity with, uh, you know, with its challenges and problems, so things like disease and climate mm -hmm. change and, and so on. Well, there will be a lot of interesting applications in the future. But in your book, you mentioned about Siri. I mean, I have been using iPhone for a few years. I never regarded Siri as, as an AI. Mm, yeah. So I, I think that's another one of the uh, applications of AI technology that we are going to see uh, improving, you know, in the short term, becoming very, very much more sophisticated. So personal assistance mm -hmm. such as Siri, the sort of uh, sense that we have uh, that there is a, a person there, the illusion that there is a person there. Yeah. There really isn't much of an illusion with Siri because it doesn't take very long to trick Siri or to get a silly answer. And, and Siri only has quite a limited number of types of response. You don't really hold a really, you know, a proper conversation with Siri. But yeah. there are already uh, more sophisticated apps that can hold more sophisticated conversations. And I think that that's only going to uh, improve as time goes on, particularly as... Uh, the AI becomes more sophisticated, then it will uh, have a deeper understanding of the real world that we humans inhabit. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and that will make it have much more realistic conversations with us. So I think that's something that's, that's going to just can only improve personal assistance. That would be really interesting, but I'm quite curious about how AI like that self-improve itself into super AI without the help of human. Well, so so one way that you that um, people have thought about you could get super intelligent AI um, is by allowing the AI to improve itself, mm -hmm. to uh, or to make successes. Because if we make something, if we make human level AI, then by definition, uh, it can do anything that a human can do. And if we've just managed to make AI, then it can make AI as well. So it would be able to make a better artificial intelligence, and then that next generation of AI would be better at making better artificial intelligence. So mm -hmm. so some people have suggested that that would lead to a kind of intelligence explosion yeah. and you'd very rapidly get very, very much more clever AI than, than AI that's very, very much more clever than a human. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that certainly is possible in theory. I'm not quite sure that, uh, that, that there's, there's a feeling that this means a kind of takeoff of of AI that, uh, that where the intelligence would just sort of uh, you know just just take off into the into the stratosphere, but I'm not quite sure that that really makes sense because I don't I'm not sure that intelligence really is on that kind of simple linear scale. Um, but nevertheless, I think these people make a very good point, and mm -hmm. um, and maybe we need to be careful about maybe making. Uh, AI that does self-improve is not a good idea. So maybe that wouldn't be the right way to do things. Maybe we need to try to ensure that the AI that we build is always something 
that we can understand in some sense, that we can have some level of understanding of the processes underneath it. If we make a self-improving AI, then we would very quickly no longer understand the thing that we built. Although it's, already, it's true already that we don't understand the things that we build, because even AlphaGo, yeah. um, the designers of AlphaGo, are not able to explain exactly why it makes the moves that it moves. So it's already kind of the case. But it would be a, a very dramatic example of us not understanding what we built if we allowed AI to self-improve uh, in an open-ended way. It sounds like we still don't understand how our brains work. Well, that's certainly true. Okay, intelligence comes from the brain, but we don't know how it works. And we build an artificial one. We still don't know how it goes along. Well, I mean, there are, there are different ways that we might build um, uh, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So we might try to copy the brain, and, and we might try to emulate nature, or, or we might try and engineer intelligence from scratch and doing it in a different way to the way that nature did it. Um, and it's not clear what the best way to approach things uh, is. Uh, but either way, we might, uh, well, I mean, if we try to copy the brain, then then perhaps we, unless we copy an individual brain ex exactly, in which case we don't need to necessarily understand how it works. Mm -hmm. But unless we do that, we really do need to make some dramatic steps in neuroscience to understand how the biological brain works in order to apply those principles to building an artificial brain. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of conceptual breakthroughs would need to be made there as yeah. well. And on the engineering it from scratch side, then there are also conceptual breakthroughs that would need to be made because even if we're not copying the way nature did it, well then we have to think about the way, uh, how we can do it from scratch. And again, we need to come up with some deep principles about how intelligence works, how general intelligence works. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we're not quite there yet. So no need to worry about Skynet and the threat of AI because there's still a long way to go? Yes, yes. It's certainly not something that worries me because <laughs> it is something uh, human-level AI, I think, is a, is a long way off. Uh, although that's not to say that we shouldn't be uh, thinking about the consequences. And the whole reason I've written this book is because I think it's important for us as a society to have an intelligent conversation about this, about the future now. So although I've been saying that these... Uh, issues are decades away. Mm -hmm. um, 20 years uh, uh, away, the year 2046, many people on the planet today who will be alive in 2045, mm -hmm. so we need to pick an arbitrary date. Um, so we need to think about the future. So even though we, it's, it's a way off, I think it's important that we start thinking about the possibilities mm -hmm. now. So what else do you want your readers to learn from this book? Um, well, I think there are lots of things that well, haven't come across very well in, in, in the media uh, so far about AI, and that's because the public are only just starting to really learn about artificial yeah. intelligence. So, for example, I think it's important to distinguish between short-term implications mm -hmm. and long-term implications. So the kind of specialist AI that is providing an important technology today and the prospect of human-level AI, which is a long way off, mm -hmm. we've got to make you know it's important to distinguish between those things and it's also important to see that um, that there are a number of different ways that the future might go so I think it's important to, to be aware of the fact that there are some safety concerns about very powerful artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and that, uh, that that's a question that scientists need 
to think about. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's it's good if people are aware of issues like technological mm-hmm. unemployment and and the fact that we may be uh, uh, moving into a time where where there is a lot more leisure time. Um, and uh, where people have to perhaps rethink what it means to live a meaningful mm-hmm. life. So yeah. many of those issues are things that uh, where, where uh, we could all uh, benefit from having uh, you know a sort of basic level of understanding of the of the issues. Thank you so much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Shi Yu talking with Professor Murray Shanahan on his latest book, Technological Singularity. I was kind of intrigued by their conversation. It seems that we could relax a little bit since machines are unlikely to overthrow us in the next few years. But what will happen in the future? Is AI going to threaten the well-being of our grandchildren? We will never know. Okay, time to take a break. You are listening to Inconquil with Yang Yong. We will be back soon. Snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish. Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture, and writers in China and around the globe. You are listening to Ink and Quill. I'm your host Yang Yong. Let me ask you a question: How do you read a book? Flipping through the pages and immerse yourself in the fragrance of ink, or turning on Kindle and swiping fingers on the screen? An exhibition that recently opened in Beijing may provide you a third option. Let's follow Doris Wong for details. Born in 1932, visual artist Gerhard Richter is one of the most celebrated painters in Germany, as well as the most expensive one. While his fellow countryman Alexander Klug not only helmed the new German cinema movement in the 1960s, but also serves as a widely loved novelist in the Germanic world. To outsiders, these two seem to have nothing in common. But according to Li Jie, the exhibition project director at Beijing Culture and Art Center, the two artists have already created something astonishing together. 2009, the two families celebrated the holiday together at the hotel Waldhaus. During their stay, Richter would take one photo a day, while Kluger would write down something based on that picture or his own experiences. Eventually, their collaboration resulted in the publishing of the book December. This book not only discusses themes such as nature and time, it also covers a lot of stories regarding the Second World War. As the debut focuses on history, the second book, Dispatches from Moments of Calm, concentrates more on the trivia and routines of modern days. So, in our exhibition, instead of covering everything from the books, we pick out words and images that could reflect their relation and the dialogues. That's probably the reason why, in the exhibition titled "Message from Tranquil Moments," Li and her colleagues try to transform their printed conversation into a visualized one. Strolling around the exhibition hall, visitors may feel like being allured into a forest of pages. Huge banners with photos and words lined up to form walls. Small boards that represent each side of a book are hanging high on display racks like wind chimes. At the corner of the hall, you could watch the excerpt from a projector 
or listen to the interview clips of the artists. Curator Li Jie emphasizes that the key purpose of this exhibition is to give people a multi-sensational reading experience. We usually sit there and hold a book to read, but now you can literally walk through the pages, then observe and think about the messages. Around that area, we also install interactive devices. You could look at the picture and read out the lines. Of course, you could listen to others' recitations as well. Dr. Clemens Tretter, director of the Goethe Institute China, speaks highly of the exhibition. I believe this exhibition brings out a really good idea. It not only puts these two books on display, but also transforms them into a world that everyone could walk into. It won't take long to finish going through it. But it reflects on the relationship of fiction and reality, which is not something you could understand and explain right away. But I think that is exactly the main role of art. It gives you questions instead of answers. Opening in mid-May, the exhibition Message from Tranquil Moments will run at Beijing Culture and Art Center until August 16th. That was Doris introducing us to a special book exhibition in Beijing. So if you have time, don't miss it. Well, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always more interesting happenings in the literary world. To learn more about us, you can follow our Facebook account, China Plus. Thanks for listening. I'm Yang Yong. Goodbye.